banded together by a mutual yearning for the more simplistic times and random fun of the comic books of yesteryear. Alec Berry and Scott Gardner now travel back. Back to the bins! Hello and welcome to Back to the Bins. This is number 12, and I am Scott Gardner. And I am Alec Berry, and we keep putting them out in a continuity order, or chronological order, or whatever the fuck. That's it. The next episode needs to be like 63, just to confuse the hell out of people. And then we'll go back and we'll relaunch with number one. There you go. We're going we're gonna to do the whole... The whole no, we're going to do episode 600, so we uh, get mass downloads. And then we'll, uh, then we'll just hit it with number one again. There you and go. then we'll have a big event. And then at the end, nothing's going to fucking matter. Yep. No, we'll kill off Scott, and then we're going to bring him back in a year. Yeah, I like that. Okay. See, if I'm popular enough, I get to come back. I like that idea. That yeah. works. We'll do. That works. And then we'll relaunch the whole universe with two new co-hosts. And people yep. will be like, what the fuck's going on? I don't understand any of this. And I'll be like, exactly. That's what comics are all about. <laughs> and we'll get the mainstream media involved. And... uh Shit will just hit the fan, and that'll be it. Uh, so anyway, speaking of renumberings and relaunchings and continuity screw-ups and all that kind of thing and not knowing what the hell is going on, we're talking, aren't we? We're talking DC Comics this uh, this week, aren't we? Yeah, I don't know how you know that, but... I do know that, because <laughs> I'm smart. Yeah, because this is all a surprise. <laughs> surprise! <laughs> Curtain full of fuck. All right. <laughs> Yep. Well, we—I don't know what title you're doing, but uh, that's I true. That the, the cat is slightly out of the bag with the fact that I, I know that you're talking DC, and you know I'm talking DC. So we're we'll just okay. we'll just put it out that that much, I guess. All right. Well, I'll get into it then. This book. Well, first of all, I have to explain how I got this book and um, really how I'm probably going to get the next, like, 100-ish episodes worth of books. Um, <laughs> uh, a really generous listener of this show and um, Comic Forums member, Kyle Miner, uh, he lives out in San Francisco, but it turns out he used to live here uh, in town right next to mine. And uh, he came home to visit his parents and he it turns out he had a huge comic book collection, uh, eight long boxes worth, I believe. And uh, he didn't really feel like going through the hassle of shipping his collection out to his new place or go through selling them. So he called me down, and uh, he basically said, take your pick. So uh, he was kind wow. enough to let me walk out with two long boxes full of comics, uh, Mainly like Bronze Age, you know, late 70s up to maybe like the early 90s, Marvel and DC with some Vertigo. And, um, you know, it's just, it's a ton of material. And uh, really, it's probably going to all go to this show. That's so awesome. So I got to give uh, huge, huge props to Kyle Miner. Uh, really just very generous to him. And, uh, I mean, the guy could have, you know, he probably could have got, you know, at least a decent amount of money for it, you know, uh, something per box. I mean, so I really thank you, Kyle. Uh, it means a lot, and uh, I don't have to really go back issue hunting more for the show. It's all going to, you know, I kind of all got it set, and uh, it'll be a lot of interesting reading, I'm sure. So thank you, Kyle. It's awesome. And I might hook you up, Scott, with some stuff. 
Because <laughs> I am going to read it all. It's going to take me like a year, but I'm going to read it all. So, uh, all right. But the book, the first book that I pulled from this box and read is Red Tornado, number one, from July 1985. This is the first issue of a four-part miniseries. Oh, yeah. It's by Kurt Busiek, drawn by Carmen Infantino, and inked by Frank McLaughlin. Now, with that creative team, I go into this thinking, you know, oh, this is going to be cool. You know, that's that's a that's a great creative team. You know, I dig Busey. Carmen Infantino's got his name. Uh, the Red Tornado to begin with always seemed like a very interesting character to me. I think I love his look. I think he's got an awesome look. Um, that said, oh. <laughs> not a very promising start to a four issue miniseries. Uh, I don't think. Um, I'll just give the lay down the synopsis. When we open up in this book, we have Lana Lang reporting out in like uh, the middle of bumfuck nowhere, where there's this tornado going on, and uh, you know she's reporting about it. And there, uh, you know, she's showing all the destruction. And there shows up uh, the red tornado to stop it. So the red tornado basically flies into this cyclone and reverses his path, the trajectory, and uh, basically just uh, cancels the tornado out, destroying it. Um, you know, he saves the town or whatever, and he flies away. Lana Lang keeps reporting, and she's got a newscast for the evening. Uh, we go, and then the next page, it kind of gives you, like, a um, like a little background history about Red Tornado, about, like, the scientist um, Thomas Oscar Morrow, uh, T.O. Morrow, who created him to destroy the um, Justice League, or the Justice Society. Uh, I said, I think, yes, the Justice Society. Uh, but, you know, he turned against uh, his creator and joined the Justice Society, and now he's on the Justice League, and how he's uh, also known as John Smith as his human identity and everything. So you, you gotta, get the background. With, yeah. you got to love those clever secret identities, John yeah, Smith. John Smith. <laughs> it's almost as well, good as John but, Jones. But it kind of goes, that's another thing, is it? I think it kind of goes with the character because, you know, like, He's a robot, you know, and robots aren't necessarily going to be the most interesting in personality. So, like, I, in a weird way, I thought the name kind of fit, like a boring name like that. I don't know, that's just me. Then <laughs> uh, we kind of go to John Smith walking on the street as he walks into his job, and uh, he comes up to a woman named as Catherine Sutton, who turns out to be his kind of uh, significant other. And, you know, uh, then they have a, a kid named as... Uh, Treya, I, I believe I'm pronouncing that right. Treya, I'm not sure. But um, I guess she's kind of like a, uh, she's an orphan, but she's kind of close to John and Catherine. And then they kind of get, they, um, they have a present for John because it turns out it's John Smith's Red Tornado's birthday. Yeah. But they give him a hat, and it's kind of like a sailor's hat. And I, yeah, you know, not that exciting. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was kind of a waste of a page, but, uh, then we go to the next page. It gives you background on like the relationships between uh, Catherine and Tyra and John. You know uh, how you know Tyra was given up as an orphan, and then she's kind of like uh, you know connected to Catherine and John and all that happy stuff or whatever. Uh, and then they go to a movie, and then, you know they they're walking out of the theater talking about the movie. Then these robots just show up out of nowhere, and uh, they're just causing a whole bunch of trouble. Uh, it turns out they're after the Red Tornado, and they, they can lock onto him even though he's dressed as John Smith. Uh, John Smith ditches the street clothes and flies up into the sky as Red Tornado, and he starts fighting these robots. 
And, uh, you know, he basically, they're just kind of on his tail and he's flying around trying to lose them. And then he ends up catching them in his tornado path and, you know, flying, like throwing them all across the city and destroying them. Uh, lands back down on the street and, you know, everything's hunky-dory, that sort of thing. Nothing too exciting. Uh, they go back to the house and, you know, Catherine's kind of wants her moment alone, but John's, you know, kind of like, uh, distraught because, you know, he's a superhero and he's like, oh, I'm not doing enough to help the planet, all that kind of BS. And they're watching TV and then the news report from earlier with Lana Lang comes on the screen, but... It's different from how it really happened. Uh, she's talking about how the red tornado actually caused this storm and took out this town. Uh, you know, not really playing to his favor. Then there's a tap at the window <laughs> and a big yell saying, Red tornado, come outside. And uh, it turns out the Justice League has showed up. And they're basically telling Red Tornado that you have to uh, step down from the superhero game and get the hell out of town because you're causing too much trouble. And also with the uh, the fight earlier with the robots in the city, that kind of caused some damage. You know, you're going with those two events. Uh, you know, Red Tornado doesn't take it too well. He's kind of upset and flies off. Uh, then the Justice League kind of just go back to their uh, headquarters. And all of a sudden, they're just like hunky-dory fine. Like, they're, they're just talking. They don't know what happened. They're like, hey, where's the Red Tornado? We haven't seen him in a while. Oh, I wonder where he, he's at. That's my computer again. Uh... <laughs> then they kind of give a history on this this machine known as the Construct and how the Justice League fought it, and I guess it's like a mind control the thing. It's a mind control machine, and then they how they had it locked away and everything. Well, it turns out, I guess one of the jammers they have programmed into it, like to dis- like uh, disrupt the signal of the Construct, has been destroyed uh, by a rat chewing on the wires. <laughs> So the construct is now free, but the Justice League don't know, and that would be explaining why they kind of went and told the tornado off, and then they come back and act like nothing happened, because the construct took control of the Justice League, and he also took control of uh, Lana Lang earlier and switched up the news report, and uh turns out the construct is creating all of these horrible storms and sending the robots out, because... Uh, he wants to take down the red, he wants to get the red tornado, uh, out of the superhero game once and for all, so that he's not around and that the construct can destroy the world. This con- and, construct thing is on the Justice League satellite? No, they, they go to this, like, cave. That's like the headquarters or something. Oh, the, the old cave they used to have? Yeah. That was, like, outside Metropolis or whatever? I guess so, yeah. Oh, okay, all right. I was going to say that, all right, how did a rat get to the satellite? Oh, okay, all right, I got, I got you now. All right. Yeah. yeah, I guess that wouldn't make too much sense. But that's the issue. Uh, I thought it was really kind of boring, uh, I'll be honest. Uh, <laughs> not a great – Kyle, I'm sorry if I'm making you mad, but uh, not, a, not a great way to start off the box. Oh, no, you're not, you're not making me mad. It, it's odd because I have this complete mini, and I'm not sure I've ever read it. I, I, mean, I, I know I have it, and uh, I've been meaning to revisit this since uh, Busick got popular. You know what I mean? Since he yeah. became a name. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. I, I've been meaning to go back and, and re-examine some of his older stuff, and this was one of the things I was going to read because, because, like I said, I just can't remember ever reading it, so I probably got it and then just boxed it. You know? Yeah. But. Uh, mm-hmm. This, what, what disappoints is, I mean, this is the first issue, so granted, it may pick up, I have the rest of the mini, so it may pick up, um, 
the artwork was nice. I nothing, no complaints about the artwork. It's really, really nice artwork. I just think that, I mean, if in the back there's this letter from Kurt Busiek explaining his mission with Red Tornado in this miniseries, um, he gives the case of the movie Casablanca, where I guess in the background uh, there's this, there's always this one female character that they never really explore. But he always thought was really interesting, and then she probably has a good story. And he kind of connects that character to the Red Tornado in the Justice League. Uh, he's kind of always just been in the background, standing around, but you know he thinks he has an interesting story to tell. And this miniseries is all about sort of um, giving the Red Tornado his own, you know, his own calling and making him interesting, and uh, you know, setting him up to be kind of a uh, a big player in the DC universe. I thought it just kind of failed with this issue because yeah. I didn't like. I mean, I, I I had the same thoughts as you say. I'd read Justice League and I always thought the Red Tornado seemed like an interesting guy in the background. Uh, I thought he was, you know, had, like again, he had a cool look. I thought his powers were neat. I thought you could do something neat with him, but I just thought the way he set up, like you know, the John Smith and then the the supporting cast and eh, not that interesting to me. I thought it was really kind of boring. Uh, Maybe it's better served that the Red Tornado just stays in the background right, and just yeah. is on a team instead of a solo guy. That's uh, what I was going to say, too, is yeah. that, you know, I've heard that same story a number of times in comics over the years, you know. And I always think that it's a very noble thing to want to do to, to latch on to some lesser known backgroundish character in some, you know, thing and, and pull them out and, mm. and try to, you know, present here's their story and and make them cool and all that sort of thing you know the whole thing about how there's no bad characters and all that but you know sometimes a guy with a great outfit or guy with like kind of cool powers but doesn't really do anything or whatever sometimes they're best served just being that backgroundish character that that you kind of look at and think they're kind of cool and and you kind of let your mind fill in the blanks And when you get to know them and, and, and you get their story, suddenly they lose a little bit of that, that luster and they don't seem as cool anymore. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, definitely, like, some things are best left to your imagination. I think that's the case with the Red Tornado. Is uh, I don't know. And it's kind of weird now. It's, it's ironic because I was looking at the DC previews and then you have a new Red Tornado miniseries coming out. <laughs> And, that uh, trick never works. Didn't really. This this really didn't sell me on that new one. So, <laughs> you know. Well, I tell uh, you what, though, if 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 you're intrigued by the Red Tornado, I I give my highest recommendation to a two part Red Tornado story back in in Justice League. It was Justice League of America one ninety two and one ninety three. I can't remember who the writer is on it, but the artist it's it's early George Perez, and it's fantastic stuff, man. Really good story, and it it kind of it, it kind of gives you like an encapsulated origin of of Red Tornado, and really lets you understand you know his whole deal and how he came to be and and all that. And it's a lot of fun. And this was like classic Justice League, you know, with all the biggies and uh, and Firestorm had just joined, and it, it's just really great stuff. They fight the I think it's the Tornado Tyrant or whatever has T.O. Morrow in it. Just really cool story. So I, I recommend that one over over and above this four-issue mini because, <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what you mean. And, uh, you know, and I like Carmine Infantino. I, I consider myself a fan of, of his art, but, wow, the uh, 
the art on this one's not I don't know, maybe it's the inker or, or, or something. He he's one of those artists that has to be inked a yeah. specific way by specific inkers. Like Gene Day always did him justice, but then other inkers, you know, might have been a little bit heavy handed with his work or whatever and, and it takes something away. And I I don't know if that's the case here, but not, oh, not I, so I didn't think the artwork, stuff. I didn't think the artwork was horrible. I thought it was pretty good. I I didn't I had, I had more problem with the writing than the artwork in this. I, <laughs> I don't know. But again, like, you know, it's the only the first issue. Maybe it picks up in the last three. You never know. I'll read them at some point. But, uh, yeah, it was, eh. There <laughs> you go. That. Read them and report back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, Scott, what do you got? Cool. Well, I've also got a DC book. For a change, finally uh, be able to. All right, that's it. Turn that, <laughs> turn that noise off. <laughs> uh, finally, be able to show a little uh, show a little DC love on the show here. All right, we're traveling back to the April May 1978 issue. This is Challengers of the Unknown. The uh, beautiful cover on this one by Rich Buckler, again with the Rich Buckler. With uh, inks by Frank uh, Giacoa, Koya. I'm not sure how the hell you pronounce this guy's name. It's nothing but a bunch of vowels. I think it's Gia Giacoya. I'm not sure. Anyway, somebody will somebody will let me know. Written by Jerry Conway. Art by Keith Giffen. This is early Giffen. Some really good stuff, but it doesn't look. I mean, the layouts are are like you can tell with the layouts. It, it gives it away by being Keith Giffen, but he hasn't quite developed the the signature Keith Giffen look, you know, that, that he has, you know, later on, like with, uh, you know, Legion of Superheroes forward, you can look at a, a page and just, it jumps right out of you. Ah, that's Keith Giffen, but he hasn't quite developed that style yet in this issue. Uh, inks by John, so it's either Salardo or Calardo. I'm not sure. Never seen this guy's name before. Uh, original price on this one, a whopping 35 cents. Woo. And uh, just give a little history on, on the reason I picked this up is uh, you know, I was doing a little bit of research on Swamp Thing not long ago, you know the uh, his, you know just checking out his pre saga of the Swamp Thing days. You know he had you know his original series of course that ran I think it was twenty four issues, and then between the cancellation of that series and then when he reappeared in his own title saga the Swamp Thing. He spent a period of just kind of wandering around, making some guest appearances here, or there, and you know, different places like Brave and the Bold and DC Comics Presents, and some different places, Super Friends, I think. But the only place he appeared with any regularity at all is he appeared in a in a stretch in a, in a run of Challengers of the Unknown. Well, while I was doing my research, it occurred to me, uh, you know, I, I discovered that I actually was missing one issue of Challengers of the Unknown. There was one issue that I didn't have that had uh, Swamp Thing in it, so I sought this out, picked it up, and that's this this issue. It also has um, Dead Man in it. So, I mean, right off the bat, two of my right. favorite obscure comic book characters in, in one issue. You like Dead Man, too? Yeah, Dead yeah. Man's great. Yeah, love Dead Man. So this story starts out, and we got... Uh, the professor, somehow he's been injured and he's wheelchair bound at, at this point. And, uh, he's attacked from behind by this big monster thing. And he, uh, is able to make his way to like this, uh, where there's a big, 
you know, ray gun type of thing, and he zaps this monster and destroys it. And then he looks, and there's more of these big cube-looking things, and something inside of him is starting to break out from within. And it turns out that these cubes, they're like some sort of like time cube type of things, have been popping into our reality and setting these monsters loose. And the challengers basically have been trying to figure out what's going on. What are these cubes? Where are they coming from? You know, and how do they stop it? Whatever. And somehow or other, they've determined that these boxes are coming from the year 12 million AD in the future. So they, uh, went to uh, Rip Hunter's lab trying to find oh, him. Yeah. What's that? I love Rip Hunter. Yeah, Rip Hunter's One awesome. of my favorite DC characters. And I, I love his pre-crisis uh, uniform that he had, too. His very, like, yeah. Buck Rogers-looking type of thing. It was really cool. I don't know if he wears this uniform anymore, but I, I like I like this. Uh, it was like a green uniform with, like, the, the red collar, and he had red gloves, and he had a ray gun, and all. I, I loved his look back then. I don't think he... he- he has it on sometimes in Booster Gold, the new Booster Gold. But oh. most of the times it's kind of just like a t-shirt and jeans. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, he, he dons it sometimes. I know he did in the early couple first issues. but Well, they can't find Hunter, but they they basically they borrow his, uh, his time bubble. Wait a minute, hang on. <laughs> I'm backed up here. Give me just a second to figure out where the hell... Because there's so much exposition on this. All right, I'm just going to skip breeze over that part. Okay, so they can't find Hunter, but they... uh, While they're in his place, a time sphere uh, suddenly materializes in front of them, and they look inside of it, and there's uh, a skeleton... That also comes from this year, 12 million A.D. So they're totally confused now. They don't know what's going on. They're wondering, you know, what was the fate of Rip Hunter? You know, did he travel to this time? You know, why isn't he with his fear? The whole, you know, the whole deal. So they decide they're going to get into the time bubble. They're going to travel back to the future, as it were, to uh, see what's going on. Where is Hunter? What's the deal with these boxes and everything? So they leave the, uh, the professor behind. And he's basically trapped because at this point he can hear in the next room the boxes have broken open and there's all these monsters loose in his lab tearing the place up. We cut to the future and we've got the other challengers along with Swamp Thing and, you know, Dead Man's with him. They don't know Dead Man's with him. You know, Dead Man's one of these characters. He can't be seen or heard or anything, but he's there to try to help out anyway. So it's the five of them. They come across Rip Hunter, but Rip Hunter, something's going on with him. He's Now he's dressed in uh, this really futuristic-looking outfit, and he's controlling this race of, like, mutated people or something. He tries to, to kill the, uh, the challengers, and the story just gets really wacky and complicated, and it's this whole great big thing about rebellion in the future and just, you know, Rip Hunter's being mind-controlled and all, and it, they, they're trying to figure out what's, you know, what's going on with Hunter and how can they stop him, and it gets, like, super, super weird and complicated, and uh, 
it's a lot of fun and it's very interesting in the art you know particularly the uh, the Keith Giffen art is really beautiful and it's nice to be able to step back and see where he was refining his craft and and where he got to you know to, to where he's at today you know so this is like a, a bridge you know in that in that era but uh the story gives me the distinct impression that this was not one of those books where you could pick it up and you know like if this was your first comic you'd be completely lost there's not much of a recap of what was going on up to this point and it, it, it there's not really you know a sense of you know this it's not a standalone issue in other words it's part of like a, a bigger tapestry so without having read the story beforehand up to this point and the way it just kind of ends off at the end with the you know a little reveal of you know I'm the man you're looking for it was it was just a fun exercise in the art more than anything and it was nice to see you know these characters all interact together but I don't really have much to say about the story overall because it was just it was a, a link in an overall story arc rather than a than a standalone issue so it suffers a bit for for that angle of it but uh but it was fun it was neat to to check out and uh you know beautiful uh keith giffen art on that all right i think didn't jeff Loeb and tim sale do challenges of the unknown at some point wasn't there like that first their first uh collaboration. Yeah, they did. I think it was an eight-issue series, and I'm not sure that that... I'm not sure how it ties into the overall Challenger's continu- you know, history or continuity. I'm not sure if that was supposed to be some sort of some sort of reboot or reimagining or, or anything like that. I read an issue or two of it, but I don't think I ever read the whole thing, but I got the distinct impression that it was supposed to be a a separate type of thing from, from like this series, for example. But I don't know. Yeah. I'd, I'd have to re-examine that to, to tell you the truth. Yeah. I'm not, I'm not too familiar with those characters that much. I tell you the truth. I've never read any challenges of the unknown. Uh, you know, the only character you mentioned, the only two you mentioned, I was familiar with dead man and uh, rip Hunter, but I don't know. I have to check them out at some point. Yeah, the, I mean, this was the only stretch of, of challenges I'd ever read was, you know, and I, I read them just because those two characters guest starred. You know, challengers to me, are, they, they're basically like a powerless Fantastic Four. So, you know, not to be too harsh, but how interesting is that? You know, so it's, it's kind of, I think that's why, you know, they, they're not, maybe not as popular or, or not as well known as, uh, you know, as other facets of the DC universe or whatever, but, uh, yeah. you know, you throw in these other couple, you know, weird kooky characters with them and suddenly it, it, it gets interesting just to see them traveling around with a giant swamp monster and, you know, this, this dead guy that nobody can see or hear and all that. And it suddenly it, it, it takes on a whole new dimension in storytelling. So it, it was fun, but, uh, just not a, not a particularly good standalone issue. Yeah, and I, I feel sorry for any kid back in the day. If this was the first comic they'd ever picked up, it probably would like blow their mind with the very <laughs> psychedelic, head trippy Keith Giffen art. It, it's some some really wild stuff, but uh, it was a lot of fun. Well, I'll DC this episode. Yeah. I'll, that's like back home for you, isn't it? Right? 
Oh yeah, that's my my home universe. Love me the DC. And that concludes another episode of Back to the Bins. If you have any sort of feedback, please email the show at backtothebins at gmail.com. All content featured in this episode is the sole property of Back to the Bins. No rebroadcasting or retransmission of this content is permitted without the written consent of myself or Scott. Back to the Bins is an Alec Berry, Scott Gardner production, copyright 2009. Join us again next time and we will go back. Back to the Bins.